Okay, well, I understand that people getting, are getting extra credit for being here tonight. <laughs> Who's getting extra credit? Welcome, everyone. This is Steve Markadon. It's uh, Monday, March 2nd, 2009, and this is the Future of Education. Our special guest tonight is Gary Steger. Gary, we're really delighted to have you here. Well, thanks for the invitation. I'm glad I could make it. Absolutely. Okay, so um, I, I want to make sure that those of you who might be new to the Illuminate environment uh, know what to do. It's a smaller group tonight, so that means that if there is a question you'd like to ask Gary, uh, you're likely going to be able to do that. And if you want to do it by, um, so I just had to pause because Arnie Duncan has logged in. Now, do you really think uh, that's our new Secretary of Education, or <laughs> is that someone having fun? Either way, we're glad you're here. That's a gym. <laughs> so if you think you might want to ask a question, you can uh, run through the audio setup wizard, which is under tools, audio, and the audio setup wizard. And that will allow you to uh, make sure your microphone is working. Um, if you would like to respond in some way during the session, there are a couple of uh, neat little ways to do that. Um, hang on, I'm get ahead of myself. Okay, I don't have a slide for that, but if you look on your screen, you'll see down at the bottom of the participant window, you have a smiley face. If you click on that, it indicates you're happy about something. The clapping hand, which is the hand with the little red arrows, is clapping. The confused emoticon says that you want clarification. The thumbs down, of course, will not apply to Gary, but we, we know that you're not going to have anything to be uh, discouraged about the good symbol is there. And if you want to raise your hand, you can do so with the hand with the green arrow up. If you click on that, it will raise your hand, uh, and then uh, we'll call on you to ask a question. So we just demonstrated that for us. Okay, so if you look on the whiteboard, uh, you'll see that there's a little wand with a red dot at the end. And we're going to ask you to click on that now and indicate where you are on this map. So you just click on that wand with the red dot and then click on the map. And that shows where you are. And you have to have permissions to do that. So now you're able to do that. So far, everybody's in the US tonight. I'm not certified for export. <laughs> okay, so uh, tonight it is a pleasure to have Gary Steger with us. I interviewed Gary about two years ago almost, and he and I have talked about doing this again several times. I'm really delighted to have him on again. Gary, I listened to the interview today that I had done two years ago and was just really impressed and appreciative of uh, the things that you had said. So uh, glad to have you back. Thanks. Great to be here. So you and I were both at a conference called EDUCON in Philadelphia last month, uh, or maybe actually the month before it was in January. And you said a couple of things in a panel discussion that really stuck with me, one of which was parents love their children. So what did you mean by that? Well, what I meant by it was that if we're talking about how to reorganize schools or reform schools or reconstitute schools and reinvent education, we have to start from the assumption that parents love their children and that they'll make the best choices for them available, if choice actually is available. Um, a lot of the decisions we make re regarding pedagogy and curriculum and, and personnel um, are based on the exact opposite of that, the idea that parents are incompetent, they don't care about their children. We also base a lot of decisions on the, the notion that teachers are incompetent and don't know how to teach and don't know anything about learning. Um, so what I was suggesting was that um, we need to have an environment in which we base our decisions and our planning on the notion that, that indeed parents love their children and when given the option, given a viable choice between real alternatives, they'll choose the one that's best for their kids. Do you think there's a degree to which um, believing that parents uh, aren't really capable of making decisions for their children is uh, kind of uh, self-fulfilling? Oh, absolutely. We don't have any evidence to the contrary because we don't give parents any, any actual say in, in public education. Um, you know, I hear a lot of rhetoric about parental involvement, but I know as a parent of three, um, 
the school only wanted me to serve in two functions. Um, one was as an ATM. I was to write checks to finance whatever activities they, they wanted to, to offer. And the second as a NARC to enforce the, the policies, often heavy-handed, non-democratic policies that the school wanted to inflict on the kids. Um, other than that, they didn't want me anywhere near the holy compound. Um, even in so much as year after year after year, offering every single teacher my kids had um, donations of materials, of, of books, of, of lending them computers, whatever they would need to, um, to enrich the learning process, to enhance the learning environment for our kids and for other kids. Um, in 12 years of schooling with three kids who went through the public school system here in Southern California, we never had a single teacher actually email or pick up the phone and ask us to contribute in any way other than the sort of unimaginative ways like, you know, um, funding the field trip to go see bedtime stories with Adam Sandler or one-sided one contracts in which parents were to agree to ways in which their children were going to be punished by the school. Other than that, there was never any interest in actually having us involved in any sort of beneficial way that would enrich the learning environment for all kids. So Gary, you've raised an interesting question. When you use the word democratic, um, would we describe our current school system as democratic? Or if it were a political institution, would it be socialist or even communist? Um, it's increasingly authoritarian. The major schools, school districts, the major urban school districts in this country now have something euphemistically called mayoral control, which is the suspension of democracy. It's the, the abandonment of local input into decision making. Um, it's reached this sort of hilarious heights of when asked why after five years um, there was no parental involvement in the schools in New York City, Chancellor Joel Klein actually apologized to the city council and said that he had yet to be able to fill the position of chief family engagement officer. Now the notion that you have to have some sort of bureaucratic you know, a person with a Norwellian title like that, just to have parents involved in their kids' education is absolutely ridiculous. And I think we swing wildly from extremes. We either have the sort of no-choice public schools based on the, the myth of, the, of the, local, the local neighborhood school, or we have demagogues who are pushing for privatization of schools and vouchers for religious education institutions. Um, when we seem to skip the middle ground, which is the most fertile, I believe, and that is um, universal public school choice. That every school ought to be run by the parents and the teachers in that community based on the needs and philosophy and, and expectations of, of, the, of that local community. And it doesn't have to be local. I mean, it means the kids who, who attend that school. So uh, Mr. Duncan, or the person pretending to be Mr. Duncan in the session, asks, I think, a really good question, which is, um, is that, uh, are, are there going to be um, places where families don't have a choice because of where they live? Which I think is the question of equity. Well, sure. When, when we have a system that's, that, that allows either a handful of well-connected parents to game the system by creating the charter um, that, that they, they want or nothing. Um, I think if we have universal charters where every school has the freedom to set curriculum and be involved in, in, in personnel matters um, as well as the sort of prevailing educational philosophy and pedagogical approach of the school, um, then people would have actual choice. If, if you wanted to really um, up the ante on democracy, you would change laws so that a kid is a student of Pennsylvania rather than of Philadelphia or of California rather than Los Angeles or Compton, and then that child can go to school in any public school anywhere in the state. That's the only way you're going to ensure, any, ensure equity. So Gary, you know, the, the, the neighborhood, let me just say one more thing ahead. about this. The, the neighborhood school, the, the myth, myth of the neighborhood school is, is a threat to that sort of to democracy and to that notion of equity because it's, you know, the neighborhood is, it tends to be folks of similar socioeconomic status or racial or ethnic background 
um, in one concentrated area. And because we put the this myth of the neighborhood school above all else, um, you know, the, the, the inequities tend to be concentrated and reinforced by the neighborhood school. So it seems like I've heard two, I hear two arguments against uh, local choice. One is the equity argument and the other is the concern that there will be failure. Um, don't we already have hey, we're failure? More than now? Yeah, right. You know, I, I met someone from the large urban district on Friday who said that one of their, in one of their schools, 65% of the kids were failing all four core subjects. And I said, uh, just in terms of a benchmark, is that good or bad for the district? You know, because it's, the, the failure is so rampant in some, in some places. And, and not just in urban districts. I think some of the failure that we don't talk about is the lost opportunities um, that we're having even in well-to-do suburban classrooms, which are all too often mind-numbing, soul-killing places just like the worst urban environments. Now granted, um, those kids tend to survive and, and thrive because of support systems outside of the school that are, that are more critical in an urban context because the school needs to be the best six or seven hours of a kid's day. Um, but we're not talking nearly enough about the fact that, that classrooms everywhere are homogenized, authoritarian, lifeless, joyless um, places that, that, that better resemble Dickensian sweatshops than, you know, places where, that are productive contexts for learning. So how does that relate to your statement also at Educon that, that schools need to have a moral purpose? Well, I think, I, you know, uh, uh, you know, I think that that um, the schools can't have a moral purpose unless they're able to state what they believe and then try to live up to those expectations. And that's only possible where there's as much local input and control of the institution as possible. Um, uh, obviously, I think, I think it's, you know, regardless of your, your faith tradition, um, if there is a day of reckoning, will be measured based on the way that we treat children in our society. Um, and, and whether we, we do everything we can to make sure that their schooling experience is the richest and, and most wondrous time of their life that, that's possible. Um, to do otherwise, I think, is, is immoral. But you know, on the, on the level of morality, I think um, there's a sort of re moral relativism, and that's a term that the religious right, who I don't share a lot of um, <laughs> commonality of belief with, but they talk about um, moral relativism that, and I find is true in public education, where we we talk a lot about best practices or good practices, but we refuse to talk about bad practices. And I don't think we can have best practices in the absence of saying that some things are clearly bad for children. And some of our practices are, are truly bad for children. Some of them just rob them of opportunities that should exist otherwise. And, and at Educon, I, I thought it was extraordinary that when I said on the panel that it was always wrong to yell at children, two of my co-panel members took the limited time they had allotted to them to say that they thought it was okay to yell at children. Um, the gentleman from KIPP, which is sort of, you know, this obedience school that's sweeping the land. It's a place where you send other people's children and they're treated like pets. Um, you know, he actually had a whole shtick lined up at, all, at the ready for how it was perfectly appropriate to yell at children. I disagree. I think that's immoral and counterproductive. Gary, I noticed a couple of other things at Educon really stood out, one of which was the student participation in the conference. Uh, was that noticeable to you? Um, sure. And I find it extraordinary. Um, you know, it's only extraordinary because, because schools have been this place where adults teach and kids learn and then they go their separate ways. You know, but I, I work in enough countries around the world where it's not uncommon for children and teachers to socialize, for the third, you know, for Mrs. Smith's third grade class to have a cocktail party once a month or every two months where the parents and teachers get together and chat. Um, 
where there these sort of artificial boundaries between you know rank and position um, are broken down. So so when I see kids at a conference, I love it and I like hanging out with the kids and I had nicknames for some of them and I spent a lot of time with them. Um, but I don't find that particularly extraordinary. And I think that it's, it, it's, it's indicative of how broken the system is that anyone sort of um, overreacts about how, how amazing it is that kids were involved in the conference or that kids asked thoughtful questions or that kids were polite or that kids were helpful. That ought to be the norm rather than the exception to, to the rule. And the fact that it's exceptional, I think, points to the um, poverty of what's happening in way too many schools today. And let me say one more thing about that. We need to have the ability to critique some of that participation. And you know, a lot of what we're doing, particularly in ed tech, suffers from what my friend and colleague and mentor Seymour Patrick called verbal inflation. That we're so impressed that kids can do anything, particularly if it involves a computer, that, that we're often not critical enough about the quality of it. And we don't ask the kids to go one step further or to deal with, it, with a subject in a more complex fashion or to, to develop the, the discipline of, of improving that practice. I'm, I'm in a room that's energy efficient, so the lights just turned out. So now I have to go do a little dance so you can see me again. So hang on one second. <laughs> Enjoy the dance. Okay, I'm back. Is it Jerry, when you and I, yeah, that was fun. When you and I talked It'll before, happen 30 more you, times. Talk, yeah, you talk a lot about the learner being at the center of the process. So do you want to elaborate at all about that? Well, I think it's a very simple, self-evident notion. The learner is the person who does the learning. The learner is the person who constructs meaning through rich experiences by being immersed in as productive a context for learning as possible. Um, that's the opposite from the view that would suggest that learning is the result of being taught. And that the way that we improve education is through teacher tricks or through um, buying a new textbook or implementing a new curriculum or, um, God help me, you know, testing kids with standardized tests once a week as they're now going to do in Philadelphia. Um, having said that, um, you know, we, we, we really need to be able to sort of, again, define, you know, what, what excellence is in new ways and to be able to have honest conversations about the, the quality of, of, of learning. And, and my objectives, my goals are, are, and standards are much higher than those people who push standardized tests um, and standardized curriculum. And one of the insights that I've had recently um, visiting some urban districts around the United States is that even when well-intentioned, a lot of the, the solutions to educational problems tend to make the situation worse. And let me give you an example. What I found recently is that, um, that some of these improvements, and I put improvements in, in quotation marks, um, actually have the effect of introducing more chaos into an already unstable system. So if you've got an urban district that, that suffers from any number of, of existing problems and, and perhaps teacher quality that's lower than we would like and students who, who come to school hungry and may have behavioral issues, um, and you've got a teacher who's been hanging on by a thread for 20 years, but who genuinely loves the children and can maintain order and occasionally even teach kids something or create an environment in which they learn something. And you take that teacher who's been teaching rocks and minerals for 20 years, and you decide in an ivory tower somewhere that it would be better if all the seventh grade teachers were integrated science teachers. Um, and now you take that rocks and minerals person and make her a physics teacher. Um, you're introducing more chaos to our already unstable system because now you have a teacher who's not particularly prepared to, and I, again in quotation marks, deliver the content that's expected of them um, in an environment that's already, you know, crazy and is getting more and more intense as this as this public schooling becomes more punitive and oppressive and and test oriented, where. You know, the, the headlines this morning were Michelle Rhee is going to do an end run on the unions in Washington, D.C. and, you know, and drive wedges between teachers and get rid of tenure and, you know, okay, great. You know, I'd actually be willing to give, 
to concede to her that we should bust the unions if she could tell me what she would do on day two. Um, that's not a solution to any, any sort of educational problem. That's just a, a mean-spirited attack on the people who are doing their best with limited resources. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't think there's bad teaching. I said that earlier. I think we need to be able to talk about what, you know, when kids aren't working up to their potential and when teachers aren't working up to their potential um, with, with real candor, which I don't find um, a lot these days, particularly in the blogosphere where any kid who burps or farts into voice stream um, becomes you know, a MacArthur genius. Um, I, I, I think we need to have high standards, but you know, being mean and being punitive, I don't think um, leads us in any productive direction. So it turns out that our Secretary of Education in this chat, I think, is actually Will Richardson. And, and Will says, SLA is a great school, but it doesn't scale. Is that one of the other arguments against local choices and control, uh, that people want to be able to scale? <laughs> well, it, maybe it doesn't scale in six months, but it might scale in a generation. Um, but there's no chance for it to scale. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, you know, that's a hypothesis that's impossible to, um, to, to evaluate because we've never had an opportunity for other SLAs to exist. And what I was saying during the panel at Educon was, you know what, it's a very pragmatic, this is a very pragmatic view, but I'm not going to be able to stop the KIPs and, and similar programs. Um, the best I can do is agree with them that we ought to let a thousand flowers bloom and they can have their schools as long as I can have my schools and that parents can choose between them. One of the reasons why, why these, these sort of draconian obedience schools like KIPP are, again, successful is because it's the only choice given to parents. And at the very least, the teachers there care about the kids. Um, because they have an evangelical sort of missionary zeal that they're going to go in and rescue these children from their communities, um, and you know that has some positive that has some positive benefit. But you know it should be okay for them to exist as long as we can have big picture schools and SLAs and um, the sorts of places that um, politicians and demagogues and Bill Gates would send their own children to if they were so inclined to send their children to the public schools. Instead, we have a situation where Bill Gates is now touting KIPP as the model for educational innovation when, when we know damn well he would never send any child he cared about to such a school. So Lee, I see that you've raised your hand. I think maybe you want to ask a question. I'd like to ask one more question of Gary before we move to the Q&A. Gary, to be sensitive to your time, why don't we say we'll start mm -hmm. the q in about five minutes and, and let people ask you some questions. So uh, one thing that I noticed at Educon was that there, uh, there, was, there was definitely a feeling that um, there needs to be school reform, or at least from some of the people around me in the audience at that particular um, panel session. And someone sat next to me said, gosh, I wish the governor had been here to hear this. <laughs> and I, I left thinking, what if the governor had been there? Is that just mandating someone else's agenda? Is it just a horse of a different color? Is school reform really possible? Or are we going to look for some kind of disruption that actually allows for this local control that, that won't come from an actual school, re school reform program? Um, you know, that's a complicated question. I think as uh, as something I said on, on Will's blog a couple of days ago, um, having a politician or the governor there doesn't ensure that that person will understand it. Um, and I think that one of the jobs we need to be doing is we need to be translating for politicians what it is that we believe and even what it is that they see. Because I think that, that the schools I visit, all of them, are worse than anyone thinks. And that, that goes for the, the wondrous, you know, leafy suburban private schools with their Olympic-sized swimming pools and their multi-million dollar um, performing arts centers. That, as I said earlier, that they're not even seizing the wondrous potential of their kids, of building upon their expertise, of using the technology in, in rich, expansive ways 
that allow kids to have experiences and do math and do science and be engineers and composers and filmmakers in ways that we would have never imagined that wouldn't have even been possible a couple of years ago. So one of the things we need to be doing is not only creating compelling models, but we then need to be holding people's heads and steering them towards those those models while while trans translating them for them by helping them understand what's happening here. That I, that I thought for a long time that you know the work of Jonathan Kozel, for example, where he spent 40 years sitting in classrooms and giving voice to the voiceless and telling the stories of poor children in America's public schools has been critical for people to understand um, the poverty of imagination and innovation and um, pedagogical excellence and learning that that so that so many kids are unfortunately accustomed to. While on the other hand, we need someone like that who's going to sit in those schools that parents really love and think are just swell and point out that some kids are disengaged, probably more than, than we'd like to admit, that a kid answer, raises their hand and is dismissed as being a pest, or the schedule is so regimented that there's no time for, for kids to talk about anything that's happening in the news that day or anything that matters to them. Um, there's no opportunity to make connections between subjects. There's no computer science. Being being available to kids in an age where having agency over the computer is is critical, regardless of uh, of the field of endeavor you're interested in, whether it's the arts or the sciences or the social sciences, um, where you know we have to make these Faustian bargains in order to have small schools like SLA. The first thing that has to go is the band. You know, I like to say the only reason I went to school was banned. It's the only reason I sent my own kids to school. We're, we live in the richest country in the world. It's, it's just unacceptable that so few kids have rich music and art experiences in school. Um, you know, one, one example of not getting it is you can hear, you know, Bill Clinton was on Elvis Costello's show Spectacle a few months ago talking about how he, you know, spent his adolescence studying Ornette Coleman and Eric Dolphy's music and, and how he could never have been present if he hadn't played in a school band. And as a result, he does a lot of philanthropy now for the charity called Save the Music. And, and I just wanted to reach through the TV and grab him by the neck and shake him and say, hey, you're one of the reasons why the music has to be saved. Your policies of turning classrooms into you know, test prep sweatshops um, meant that kids are being deprived of the same rich experience that let you become president of the United States. Um, and so there's, there's a disconnect as well as, you know, we have to create compelling models because people can't choose from what they haven't seen. As my partner taught me a number of years ago, when you have a toddler, you don't say do you want to walk or be carried. You say do you want to walk on the sidewalk or on the grass. Um, when we're talking about school reform, we need to have genuine alternatives that can compete in the marketplace of ideas for parents to choose for, for their kids. And I think that's possible and as we started, I think parents will make the right choice. Let me just take 30 more seconds on this and, and, and tell you that I've been thinking about this issue since about 1972. And I didn't know I was thinking about it in 1972 until recently. But when I was in the fourth grade around that time, um, I painted everything black because I realized that I could get the child study team to come in and evaluate me on a regular basis. And that was a lot more interesting than anything that was going on in class. And the recommendation of the child study team in, in a upper middle class suburb of New Jersey was they told my parents that I should go somewhere else. That was the only option that existed. Now, it wasn't a real option because if we could have afforded it, there wasn't a somewhere else I could go. Um, but in fact, there was a somewhere else I could go. Because at the same exact time, in the same district where I was a student, there was a RAND Corporation funded open education project in a couple of schools. Now that wasn't made an option to me, even though I would have thrived in that environment because I lived on the wrong street. And not only couldn't I go there because of my, my zip code, but the teachers who were teaching in an open education school um, many, of, many, many of them didn't believe in that approach to education and either consciously or subconsciously um, sabotaged it. That, that, you know, that a lot of people in the community decided that open education didn't work. And it seemed weird to me then and it seems outrageous to me now that if you had a school district that was 25 square miles and you had 
10 or 12 elementary schools and you needed 20 elementary school teachers who shared a philosophy of open education to be in one building teaching kids who would benefit from the open education environment, that you couldn't do something as simple as put a notice in teacher rooms in all 12 schools saying, hey, who wants to teach this way and we'll move your parking space to a new building. But the system was broken then and it's more broken now so that it was impossible to have like-minded teachers who shared an educational philosophy and could create a rich learning environment for kids um, to create that environment and equally impossible for kids within that very same jurisdiction um, to benefit from that experience when many of them could have. So I think, as I said, we need to create compelling models because people don't know what's possible. And, and, and when they do, they're often selective in their conclusions or dishonest in, in what they share with the public. You know, it's, it's worth noting that, again, the Bill, Bill Gates talks about KIPP as the model of teacher excellence um, when he doesn't cite studying what his kids' teachers do as being excellent. Um, and he doesn't even cite the fact that, that his foundation funded the big picture schools which are excellent schools that have an educational philosophy and approach 180 degrees from, from that which he just recently talked about at the TED conference to an audience of well-educated, wealthy white people who barely laughed at, at, at his cheap shots at teachers and workers unions and, um, so, and any sort of approach to learner-centered education. Gary, so uh, because we have limited time and because there have been a lot of sure. questions I've seen in the chat, I think I'm going to turn it over sure. to the Q&A. So Lee, right. I want to give you the first opportunity. Uh, I'm going to give you the mic, Lee, and what you do is you actually push the button down in the audio box for Mike to start speaking. Is this working? Yeah, you you're a little uh, soft. Be sure to speak up. Okay. There we go. How's that? Great. Okay, Gary, um, I've got a question. Yeah, hi. Throughout this, how you doing, Gary? Good. Good. Thanks for sharing your ideas with us. But unfortunately, most of them seem to be complaints and uh, aiming at problems. I don't see a whole lot of, I mean, instead of coming up with all the problems, what kinds of answers do you have? What kind of plans do you have? I know I've, I've talked to you many times and and you talked about them then, but you haven't addressed any of that this time. Please don't speak in platitudes. Um, well, you want to be more specific? Uh, you know, choose an area. I'd be, I'm, I mean, I'm happy to speak specifically, um, but I, I want to avoid the, the the problem of being platitudinous when you're, act, you're you seem to be looking for a particular area of discussion. I think Gary's asking if you wanted to be, if you wanted to be, you wanted to just put this for the specific area. Specific area. Um, what do you think? Sure. Yeah, pick, pick a specific area that, that you're comfortable with, but just give us some specifics about how you think education needs to be changed and what it would look like. Um, sure. I'm a big fan of of, of multi-age heterogeneous schools. Um, I, I think that there would be rich music and art opportunities for all kids. Um, I think that every kid should have a computer and the computer should be used in constructive fashion to make things and to have intellectual and creative experiences that wouldn't have existed otherwise. Um, I, I think that computer science it should be part of, of the K-12 educational experience for every child. Now, I find it extraordinary that the ISTE um, National Educational Technology Standards are allegedly focused on creativity and innovation, yet computer science and programming don't appear once in, in the document. Um, I think it's important for kids to have agency over the computer. Um, and, um, you know, I think that particularly in in places where kids have difficult lives outside of schools, 
it's incumbent upon us to make school the richest six or seven hours of the kid's day. That, that if we started with the question of how do we make this the, the best six hours of a kid's day, I think we can have a dramatic impact on, on a quality of education in the United States. Um, you know, I often end my keynotes by telling the story about how in, um, you know, it's a Saturday morning. You've had, I'm, I'm distracted by the lack of light. Hang on a second. That didn't work. There we go. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I often tell the story at the at the um, end of my keynotes that you know you you spent an exhausting week teaching, and it's Saturday morning, and you slept in, and your um, go to make a cup of coffee to sort of perk yourself up, and you realize that you're out of milk, and you think, oh, geez, and you you throw on a floppy hat and an overcoat, and you sneak off to the quickie mart to buy a quart of milk. And as you're sneaking out of the store and you're congratulating yourself for going unnoticed, a former student recognizes you from the corner of the parking lot and they come running towards you with their arms open wide and they want to give you a big hug and you turn away because maybe you didn't brush your teeth and you're having a bad hair day. But that former student always wants to reminisce. And they they never say, you remember that time that we used all of our spelling words in a sentence or we crammed for the state test? They always want to reminisce about a project. The sentence is always, remember that time we, and then a verb follows, and they describe some sort of meaningful project that, that, the, that the class was engaged in. And I think the sort of highest calling for teachers is that we, we don't, we seize every opportunity possible to create as, memory, as many memories as possible. And so I'm a big fan of project-based learning. I'm a big fan of the Reggio Emilia approach. I'm a big fan of the big picture. I'm reading a terrific new book by David Perkins called Making Learning Whole. Um, I'm, I'm posting in the, in the little chat some URLs that people might find interesting to go to. Um, but those are the things that I'm, I'm enthusiastic about. And I think as I said to Steve earlier, kids are capable of extraordinary work and of making remarkable contributions to not only their knowledge, but the knowledge of their peers, and perhaps even the knowledge of, of the world. And in far too few instances um, is that becoming a, a reality when it could be the norm. I hope that answers the question in some way. So if there's anyone else who'd like to ask a question, just uh, click on the hand with the green arrow button to raise your hand. Gary, you, you talk about um, sort of the learner-centric experience. And you and I, two years ago, kind of agreed to disagree on the topic of Web 2.0. Do, do you have any sense that Web 2.0 is helping to create um, more of a movement toward an understanding of, a, of the learner being at the center? Um, in some ways, but I think that the Web 2.0 is, is the low-hanging fruit. I think that um, it's largely based on the notion that education is about access to information, and, and I think that represents a very small piece of what education is about. Um, but, but a lot of the folks involved in the Web 2.0 movement are, have become yearners. They've, they've found their own voice, and they're sort of grasping around for for a language for talking about what they've always imagined. And I think that that's moving in the direction of of, of being learner-centered. But I, but I already see evidence that the a lot of the language of the Web 2.0 community has descended into self-parody. You know, someone Twittered the other day that she was all excited because she had been asked to create the PLN for her district which is just one stop from going to Walmart to buy your PLN, as if it's a shrink-wrapped, commoditized idea, when what we're really talking about is teachers having, having a deeper Rolodex of having friends and colleagues who they can communicate with. And that's always been a goal. Now, it's, it may be facilitated by the net, but it's, it's insufficient, and it's, and, it, and it's a very small use of what computers can mean in the intellectual and creative development of children. Um, so, so that worries me a little bit. The, the fact that a lot of the discussions in the educational blogosphere are sort of ahistorical and hostile to theory um, bothers me because we stand on the shoulders of giants and 
learning theory and an understanding of it and a sense of the history of educational innovation um, gives us a language for articulating what it is that we hope will happen so that we don't have people saying, um, you know, I'm going to get me a PLN. A conference last week had a PLN plaza. Um, you know, isn't that really just friends and knowing where you can get answers to questions? And that's that's a wonderful thing, but it's it's hardly an innovation. And we really, if we're if we're selling Web 2.0 as a way to to ameliorate teacher isolation, then we need to be asking a question about why teachers have been isolated for all these years. That why is it that teachers don't know the other teachers in their building and don't collaborate with them? And why haven't there been professional opportunities for teachers to share ideas? And if we don't come to grips with those sort of underlying pathologies, like for example, why is it that some teachers have, haven't used a computer in more than a quarter century of them being available in school, then I don't think Twitter or Flickr or Twerk or Twirl or whatever other nonsense syllable new tool that's going to be created in the next three minutes um, is going to have much impact on the quality of educational experience available for kids. You know, there seems to be a lot of folks who have the sort of zeal of a recent convert that the answer to all questions is Web 2.0 because it's been so meaningful to them. Um, and, and if people were madly in love with beer making or macrame, they would try to in, you know, share that passion and enthusiasm with their, with their friends and colleagues and get them interested in beer making or macrame. What's different about Web 2.0 is that that zeal is then so, somehow makes a very large leap to the pronouncement that it will revolutionize education. And I think that, that that's a sort of naive, um, overblown expectation. So we have a question from Curtis. Curtis, I'm going to give you the mic. Hi, Curtis. Hi, can you hear me? Yep. 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 Okay. Um, there's been an awful lot of talk, of course, about schools, but it seems as though we're talking about um, actual, you know, brick and mortar places. And I'm just wondering about um, some discussion from Gary. <clears throat> on this idea of, you know, whatever you want to call it, distance learning, online choices, knocking down walls of the buildings sure. and letting kids study with and learn from people far away, and the options that that provides and it provides it to kids regardless of, you know, it can be done in such a way that it's regardless of kids based on socioeconomic situations. Um, um, sure. sure. I, I've been I've been teaching online for a very long time. Um, our master's degree program at Pepperdine, which I helped create, and I'm, um, is midway through its 11th graduating class. So I've been teaching online for about 15 years. And I've written some articles. I just put a link up in, and some conference papers about how we can create online environments that mimic or even surpass the best sort of face-to-face -face classroom environments if we want to create learner-centered experiences. Um, one of the things we need to do is differentiate between distance learning, which is often a way of solving a problem like a shortage of teachers or, or geographic proximity or lack of geographic proximity. And, and that's often um, sort of done on the cheap and it's kind of like correspondence school as opposed to distributed learning where kids have opportunities to study with, with experts regardless of their age or the age or the location of, of, of the experts. Um, and what I think if you think about the future of education, which is the title here, what you need to do is think of the classroom and that brick and mortar you mentioned as a technology. That 25 little desks, one big desk is a certain kind of technology. It's an invention of the last couple hundred years. And we ought to look at any technology and identify its affordances and constraints. And what I mean by that is I no more want a kid to walk into a classroom and have the teacher say, go to this website and read it then I want to have a kid go into a classroom and have the teacher say, read chapter 13. Um, that's a waste of the opportunity, of the affordances of the technology, of having all those people together in one physical space. 
And so if we think about the future, it is probably the case that school, the, the brick and mortar kind, will, will be unable to monopolize kids' time for any number of reasons. And, and therefore, it needs to be the place where you gain benefit from being together in the same physical space. So ironically, we ought to be putting our emphasis and our funds um, behind school being the place for the orchestras and the pottery kilns and the electron microscopes and the field trips and the teachers who can engage kids in long-term, um, deep, complex, personally meaningful projects and find ways to distribute all the other stuff, like looking things up and reading and answering questions to outside of that context of the, of the box and the bricks and mortar. And as I said earlier, in, like in most um, situations involving education, the way we respond to the current crisis is by reinforcing school as the place where we drill kids, where we pour information into their heads, where we test them constantly, where they regurgitate facts, and where in order to do all of that a little more effectively, we've gotten rid of the science labs and the pottery kilns and the plays and the musicals and the dance studio and the orchestra and the jazz band, um, when in fact that's the thing that makes school viable in the next century and beyond. One more question, but are you feeling timeless like you would like to go? I, I can go. I can go ten minutes at least. So I'm, I'm okay. Don't worry. If you got a couple more questions, I'll take them. So Nari, let's have you raise your hand again, and we'll let you yours be the final question. Good evening, everybody. Uh, can you hear me all right? Hi. Hi. So Gary, I'm curious. Um, as a researcher, I am. Uh, person who's been in education over 25 years and has always worked with technology but has never wanted to be a technologist and this whole five years of uh, Web 2.0 has become what I believe is a giant tool fest, which isn't a bad thing at all, but to stay focused on the future of education, I'm wondering what you think would be a good thing to follow with research educational behavior like constructivism, or is there something that as we're going through this transition, you believe would be worthy of researching over the next five years? Hmm. Um, uh, let's see. I think, well, let me say one, one more thing about Web 2.0 so I make sure that, that, I'm, that I'll be flamed on blogs and the Twitterverse for days to come. Um, if the Web 2.0 tools are any damn good, they should require no instruction whatsoever. They should be as easy and reliable to use as a telephone. And if I need to learn anything about them, then I think they're, they're defeating their own purpose. Um, that's different from mastering modeling software or simulation environments or learning to compose music or make films or do all the other sort of wondrous things we can do with computers. I, I think you know, the research agenda needs to be based on, on creating dramatically different models of what's possible, of creating environments that don't look anything like what we've seen before. My own doctoral research was based on creating a, a, a the official terms of sort of alternative constructionist, project-based, multi-age um, learning environment inside the state prison for teens in Maine where the governor and the commissioner of education freed us of all the curriculum and assessment requirements because they were smart enough to recognize that um, doing the same thing louder wouldn't achieve a different result. When you had kids who hadn't been in school in a number of years who were classified with a variety of learning pathologies, we needed to create a different kind of learning environment for them where they could work on personally meaningful projects for very long periods of time so they could actually learn something. So, one of the things that we need to be doing is we need to be change, changing multiple variables simultaneously. It's not sufficient to just come up with new pedagogical strategies um, or changing the structure of the school or the schedule. We also need to call into question some of the content. And you know, I often tell school leaders that leadership isn't just about addition, it's about subtraction too. Uh, so you know, we live in a day and age where 
everyone from the president down to governors to local school boards is trying to find a way of teaching something called algebra in utero now. I, you know, that California is having you know, legal battles over whether or not every eighth grader should be able to pass an algebra test. Um, you know, when I was in school, you didn't even see anything resembling algebra until ninth grade. And the fact is, there's, there's no evidence whatsoever that anyone has learned anything any differently or better or stronger um, in those intervening years. Um, and more importantly, we're not having a discussion about why we think algebra is important and what is algebra and should every kid learn it? Are, are there other things we should be doing as well as could we be teaching it more effectively? So we keep adding, which creates more stress on the system and more chaos for teachers as opposed to subtracting. So I think we really need to focus on, you know, what are the four or five big ideas of any, of any given year? And we need to be confident enough in our ability and the fact that kids spend currently, you know, what is it, like 100,000 hours in school, K-12, that if they don't get dinosaurs in first grade, they'll get them sometime and it'll be just fine. Um, that this Perkins book talks a lot about something I believe, which is, you know, we need to be talking about what kids can do. We need to be you know, having, allowing them to demonstrate their ability to solve problems that hopefully school hasn't taught them how to solve explicitly. And that requires us not to just look at the structure of schooling or the pedagogical approach, but we also have to call into question some of this content. You know, pick up a math textbook, turn to any random page and read it aloud and try not to giggle. And then try to imagine having to sit through that class every day for 180 days a year over 12 years. It's unconscionable. I often think that particularly math teachers have a faith-based relationship with the curriculum, that, that, they, that they just sort of deliver it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year without giving it much thought. Because if they did, they would question it. And they would question not only the methodology, but the content. We should take seriously the questions as well as the intentions and experience and expertise and prior knowledge of kids and take them very seriously when they ask the question, what do I need this for? What, what will I do with this? Um, we need to move away from Apollo Ferry called the banking model that, that, that and a sufficient answer for why do I need to know this is because you'll need it later, like as if we're putting it in a bank to be stored and, and, and retrieved at a later date. Um, you know, learning ought to be the whole game, as Perkins talks about. We ought to be learning in a, in a rich way that makes connections and that um, kids embrace and love and and makes them feel and feel powerful as a result. So, I think the research. I mean, my own research interests are creating schools that are dramatically different. Now. We could say schools don't need to exist. They're so 20th century, you know. But you know, there's a few million kids in this America, in this country. Actually, probably tens of millions of kids who are going to have to go to school tomorrow. And it's worth it's worth it for us to find a way to make those experiences better and to take advantage of the amazing technological opportunities that are available to kids um, and build upon their expertise and their talents and and their questions and their curiosity and take them further than they could have gone on their own. Gary, are the lights off or sign that we need to finish? I'm sorry, say that again? <laughs> I think I the lights off are like, like the curtain closing. Hey, uh, Gary, thanks so much for being here tonight. I'm going to give you a clap. This me clapping. If you want to clap for Gary, you can do so with the hand in the red. Gary, you never fail to create discussion and conversation, and hopefully that's what we're about here. Um, we do have uh, another event coming up. In, in the in the in the, uh, in the, the grand tradition of um, of media, can I get in a plug? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that drives my work is 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 understanding how important it was for me as a young teacher and learner and yearner to come in contact with smart people who who had provocative ideas and and tons of experience and were genuine leaders in, in the work that they did. And I've been really disappointed over the past few years at how few opportunities there are at national and regional conferences for teachers to come in contact with powerful ideas and the originators of those ideas. And as a result, um, I've created 
an event called Constructing Modern Knowledge, which will be held July 13th to 16th in Manchester, New Hampshire. And it's four days in which you can mess about with computers and use them in, in powerful ways and explore the, the, con the connections between discipline areas as well as individual creativity um, while working alongside some of the, the great thinkers in education today. So Herb Cole, the author of more than 40 books on progressive education, is going to be part of our faculty just hanging out, talking to people, collaborating on projects. Deborah Meyer, the first public school educator to win the MacArthur Genius Award, will be, will be, will be one of the guest speakers. Lisa Snyder King, who is a genius at, um, at digital imaging and, and photography, will be participating. Peter Reynolds, a well-known children's illustrator and author and educator animator will be part of this. So we try to keep the costs low so people can, can come. It's an intimate experience where you can not only rekindle your own imagination and fall in love with learning again and see it, the wondrous ways in which computers can enhance the, the creative process and, and your intellectual development, but also meet some people and interact with folks that, that you would have never had access to otherwise. Um, I, you know, I, I, last year we had, you know, we had Alfie Cohn as, as a participant, and, and I'll just end this last thought. You know, this is, this is evangelism on my part that goes in two directions. Um, on one hand, I think the folks who are interested in educational technology should know about the, the powerful ideas of constructivists and progressive educators and people who don't necessarily have technology on a radar screen. And at the same time, I want the folks who don't think about computers as intellectual laboratories and vehicles for self-expression to be able to see what's possible and how we can amplify the learning experience and, 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 and make the learning environment more productive for, for children um, by, by participating in an event like this. So I want the participants to come away from constructing modern knowledge and be able to say to their colleagues, I spent time with Alfie Cohn as opposed to um, I heard Alfie Cohn, or being able to say Alfie Cohn sat down next to me and talked to me about my project as opposed to I went to a conference where Alfie Cohn spoke. And at the same time, I was thrilled when I received an email from Alfie saying that he had just taken his children to a, squeak, to a scratch workshop because he had seen what was going on at, at Constructing Modern Knowledge last summer. So that we're spreading the ideas of, of learner-centered education both to the folks who love and embrace digital technology and, and those who don't and trying to create an environment where they can sort of come together and mess about and play and dance and eat and, and collaborate. So I hope some of you will, will consider joining us this summer and we'll pass the information along to your colleagues. I, I typed some URLs for recommended books and handouts and such um, that, that I'm happy to share with you um, in the chat window. Okay, again, many thanks to uh, Gary. I've put uh, the link to the Constructing Modern Knowledge up uh, in the chat room and also in a, a little web browser. Uh, I'm also putting up now a, a survey for the Future of Education series. Uh, sure appreciate, Gary, you being on tonight uh, and being a part of this. It is sponsored by the Knowledge Works Foundation and supported by Illuminate. So we appreciate any feedback that you can give us. And one more time, I'm going to give Gary a clap. And want to thank those of you who attended tonight for being here and being a part of this and appreciate the support. This Thursday night, uh, for, live from Q, I'm interviewing uh, Diana Kimball and Alex Levitt, who were two student interns on the book Born Digital. That should be a lot of fun. That's at 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern. So thanks again, Gary. Thanks to everybody who attended. Uh, sure appreciate uh, being able to talk with you tonight. My pleasure. Thanks again, everyone.